You're listening to sermon audio from King's Cross Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information about King's Cross Church, you can visit us online at kingscrossraleigh.com. Today's sermon text is from Acts 17, verses 16 through 34. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed when he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with those who worship God, as well as in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also debated with him. Some said, what is this ignorant show-off trying to say? Others replied, he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus and said, may we learn about this new teaching you are presenting? Because what you say sounds strange to us and we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners residing there spent their time on nothing else but telling or hearing something new. Paul stood in the middle of of the ark Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that you are extremely religious in every respect. For as I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. From one man he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. He did this so that they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Since we are God's offspring, then, we shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image fashioned by human art and imagination. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some began to ridicule him, but others said, we'd like to hear from you again about this. So Paul left their presence. However, some people joined him and believed, including Dionysius, the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This is God's word. Good morning, King's Cross. I'm Chad, one of the pastors. And I'm excited to be with you this morning to continue in our series through the book of Acts, Advancing God's Kingdom. We are going to be in Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn there and follow along with us. And we are moving into um, Paul's visit to Athens, the city of Athens. Um, it's on his second missionary journey, and he's just entered the city. And and if you go simply by the amount, the, the volume of ink that's been spilled on this passage by commentators, it stands out as potentially one of the most significant passages in the book of Acts. It's significant for us because he is speaking to uh, a community of people. He has three addresses in all of Acts. And unlike the other two, this one he is uniquely talking directly to a very well-educated group of people, philosophers included, who are all Gentiles, non-Jewish people. That's the 
primary audience that he's speaking to. It's helpful for us and instructive because we get see a window into how Paul probably continued to do this Gentile mission in other scenarios where he spoke with learned people. As we navigate through this world, he's looking at a city like Athens that's full of idolatry. It's full of wisdom of men. It's full of people, just as the passage says, wanting to exchange ideas about what they think about the world. And Paul sees those and comes to address them. And you and I are gonna face the same kind of scenarios here today. We live in a very well or maybe I shouldn't say well-educated, a world full of information. People have all the info they can handle. You can go online and search for anything. There was this magical, amazing idea at one point that, man, when we get the internet, think of the collective knowledge we'd have. We're such a smarter generation. In fact, I spend way too much time watching like cat videos (laughs) or other funny things from reminiscent of the 90s that Heather and I go to sleep at night like this is cool remember that (laughs) in fact some of the knowledge that we've been given is somewhat uh, hindering crippling people have too much information that's wrong and so we have to navigate this place where people who have watched their favorite commentator for years think that they have it all down and they know exactly who they need to vote for in the upcoming election and why all the policies matter and why you are probably just the dumbest person they know. But in this particular case, we see Paul engage them in a way that is unique because of the the audience he's facing. We can learn something about the way that he pursues those engagements and the way that he enters into the conversation and he navigates it. We can learn something as believers about where he, what he keeps central and doesn't lose in the conversation. And we can also learn something about the way they respond. And what we probably, as those who may not be even as well-versed, may feel like you're subpar compared to Paul, the guy who's written so many letters that we find in our, in our New Testament. You're like, okay, Paul does this, but me? And we get to see how they respond to him. And that we probably shouldn't expect much different. So we're gonna take the time to dive into this passage and see as we walk through it, and really just in a a way of moving through the passage together. I wanna just start from the beginning and see what is happening in this passage and what can we learn. And really what is three movements of the passage, the introduction, the beginning, Before he has the address, we're gonna look at the entire address and then we're gonna look at the response. So if you would pray with me this morning because I wanna pray that the Holy Spirit's with me and speaking through me so that we might hear him clearly. Father, thank you for your kindness to be able to give us this opportunity here this morning. Thank you for the way that you give us week after week the chance to open up your word together as a community of faith here in Raleigh that we have no fear of the doors being kicked in. We have no concern right now of being drugged before a judge to be persecuted and prosecuted because we open up your word and preach Jesus without shame. Father, I pray that we learn something today as we look at Paul's words, that we're encouraged by his boldness and that, Lord, we walk away from this emboldened and confident in your spirit to lead us in these conversations that we face day after day, week after week. 
as we see the idolatry in the world around us. Thank you for your kindness. Make us more like Jesus. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So the very first thing we're going to look at is actually starting in verse 16, where Paul is provoked by the idol worship. Follow along with me. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed when he saw that the city was full of idols. We're going to stop there. Don't worry. We're not going to do this every verse. But it's important to see what kicks off the problem for Paul. All right. Picture Paul. He's going into Athens. He's been on his second missionary journey. He's been going from town to town, proclaiming in the synagogues and then to the people in the community around that God most high is calling them all to repent and turn to him, that he have sent Jesus to die for their sin and he is Lord who has risen, come and follow him. And then he walks into Athens, which is a huge metropolitan. It's on the downgrade of its history. It's not its glorious self, but it's kind of a museum of years gone by. But at the same time, a masterpiece of ancient, of antiquity, and full around every corner, he sees idols. He sees these great thinkers, and they still got these false gods. Everywhere he turns, and what does it do to Paul? His heart's aching. He's grieved. He's grieved because there's this God who loves you so much that he sent his son for you, and you're settling for this. You're looking for hope in these idols, and they can't supply it. So Paul sees these. He's distressed, the word says. That actually shows up, that word in the original language only really shows up elsewhere in Corinthians, where Paul says that love isn't irritable. That's the same word. So my man is not just like, oh, I'm so sad. He's irritated with what's going on. It's frustrating his soul and his spirit. But it's not so much so that he's really mad and angry at the people because the first thing he does is he turns to appeal and reason with them to change their mind. He's not dismissing them. He's not walking away. He's saying, this isn't okay. So he goes to verse 17. So we reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with those who worship God, as well as in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, philosophers also debated with him. Okay, so Paul does what we've seen in previous passages last couple weeks. We know that when he goes into a city, one of the first places he stops are the people who are familiar with scripture in some way. He goes to the synagogues. He's going for that low-hanging fruit, if you will. He's like, guys, you're not getting this all right. Let me fill in the blanks for you, and then you can join my mission team, and we'll get the rest of the city. He's not, he's not dumb. He's doing it. It's strategic. So he goes into the synagogues with the Jews, but he doesn't stop there because this overflows into the marketplace, which we'll see as we walk through this that the marketplace of ideas is a big deal in Athens. They enjoy hearing about new ideas and talking about them. So in this particular circumstance, as Paul goes into the marketplace, he runs into two groups called the Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers. Now they're mentioned here, and I think it's important for us to know a little bit about what they are, and believe me, I'm oversimplifying this. I told Aaron this morning, I read way too many things about Epicureans and Stoics, and I can't tell, <laughs> you don't need it. But I do want to hit some highlights, because it's important to recognize where these two are coming from, which actually have often been put at odds with one another, because Paul 
is using what they already believe and he's speaking to them when he does his address. There's a sense in which he is contextualizing. He is taking what they already see and finding common ground so he can then bring Jesus. Okay, so Paul goes into uh, speak with the Epicureans and the Stoics. And what you need to know on this in the minimum here is the Epicureans were people who were really, uh, actually both of these groups, let me take that back. Epicureans and Stoics were going for something called ataraxia. So it's a Greek word, which actually is something of inner tranquility or pleasure, peace. Not pleasure in the sensual sense, but just a, a calm, a level. Really probably not too much unlike the idea of shalom from the Jewish community of just a total peace, okay? And they're going after this from two different angles. Epicureans and Stoics would butt heads in the marketplace of ideas because they don't see it the same way. Epicureans were ones who have been often talked about as hedonists, for just going for pleasure. But it's really exaggerated because it's not sensual pleasure that they're going for. They are wanting to do the baseline contented pleasure. They know you can pursue things like power, wealth, um, sexual pleasure, relationships, but actually from Epicurean perspective, those actually end up, and as we all know can, bringing more trouble on the back end. And they never satisfy, because you get more power, you could always get more power. So for them, satisfaction, pleasure, peace, was gonna be being content in the simplest of ways. So Epicurus, the guy who this is named for, had a school called the garden, which literally was a garden. And they would grow their own food. They'd have enough to eat. They'd sell the excess for maybe a little bit of uh, extra money for the compound, dress things up, you know? And then they would walk around. I think Epicurus was known to have two cloaks. He didn't need much more than that, just one to change and wash. And they would talk about new ideas and develop their friendships. They actually even said minimizing romantic relationships was helpful because that came with more problems too. So friendships was really big with Epicureans, all right? Developing those core close friendships. So Epicureans were very simple, very laid back, but they also had a view of God and it wasn't very high priority. God could exist, could not exist, it didn't matter. Because as far as they were concerned, if God made everything, he would be wasting his energy and time, the gods actually would what they would be saying, wasting their time concerning themselves with, with uh, earthlings, with humans. Why would he even bother with us? They're doing the same thing we're doing off in God place. They're unconcerned, not even bothered with us, okay? That's, that's a big overview of Epicurean. Stoics, on the other hand, they believe very deterministically about the world. It is what it is. We can't control that but we can control the way we react to it. They're, they're thought to be very disciplined people who were thoughtful about controlling themselves and their emotions. Not in the sense that Stoics were just cold and hard. Maybe you've heard of someone being a Stoic or thinking someone Stoicism, like, oh, they're just a rigid, you know, like a Presbyterian that just sits in, I'm sorry, I'm not gonna bring them. <laughs> well, they call them the frozen chosen. No, no, that's shots fired wrong, sorry. I didn't, I don't think that, well, it is a joke, they take it. All right, so um, in this particular case, they, they're, they're, they're not super cold-hearted. And Stoicism actually, in some ways, has something of a, uh, a comeback. There's a lot of people talking about the, the writings uh, and reading regularly the writings of Marcus Aurelius, who is a, um, uh, a, a Roman emperor who was a Stoic. Um, and, and so in this particular case, we see Seneca coming up, lots of quotes of these people, all right? And so, so it's not that they have bad ideas, 
but they have a different view of the world. They also think when it comes to God, they're pantheist. All things are God, okay? God and this world and everything in it is the same. And when you die, you just join into the unity, okay? That's just, that's, that's a very, very rudimentary view of this. So he's coming face to face with these two groups of Epicureans and Stoics, and he's also coming face to face with a lot of idolatry in the city, and he is concerned with it. Now, idolatry is another level of things happening because Greeks are very, have, have about 12 major um, idols that we know of, gods, if you will, not idols. And those 12 gods cover a plethora of things of which they will promise and give or supply. War, love, uh, relationships, um, leadership, um, all kinds of things that you get, crops, fertility. These are all things that are wedded into this pantheon of gods. Things that they are coming to the gods for. And really honestly, if you think about it, while the Epicureans and the Stoics are talking about artorexia, like inner tranquility and peace, at its core, isn't forms of idolatry that same pursuit? Like, like all of us, in some respect, the Epicureans would say everything you do is a pursuit of that inner tranquility and peace, even if you're not doing it well, okay? That your aim is for those things, that you may be misfiring and misdirected in what you're approaching or trying to do. Maybe you think that those the two bottles of wine on a Friday night is gonna be under tranquility, but then Saturday and Sunday, you're paying the cost, they would say, okay? And then for us, we see the people in here, then they go to pray for and offer sacrifices to the idols. They're really trying to achieve some other form of peace or tranquility in their life. They're trying to get another baby. They're trying to get safe passage across the sea. They're trying to have better crops, things they think that are gonna satisfy. And if I might suggest, they're trying to put their hope in that idol, okay? Epicureans put their hope in their philosophy. Stoics do the same. The idol worshipers are hoping in the idols that they put up. And they're all pursuing something that is an empty promise without the Lord, without what Paul is gonna bring, the unknown God they're not aware of yet. And, and if, I might, uh, if I might draw our attention to the fact that right now, we are surrounded by the same kind of idolatry. It's not something old. It's kind of like there's nothing new under the sun. That even though it might take a different context, it's the same story. That, that they have statues and we're not that uh, superstitious, if you will. But we still have all the things in this world and the trappings that we think are going to bring us that hope that bring us that joy, that pleasure. And, and, and believers, I'm not saying it's those people out there because we're tempted by the same thing. To, to not be discerning enough to recognize what's an idol in our life and still make sacrifices day after day to it, trusting in that idol pursuit over trusting in the Lord to provide. That's the same thing we face. My watch is talking to me. (laughs) 
must be on the right path here. <laughs> Distract me. Okay. Um, that was interesting. You want to take this? No. All right. Um, so, so we're tempted by the same thing. And, and, and I think I, I, I just had this conversation because this topic is not, this is not about this topic in the passage. But when I think of idol worship and I think of even what's prevalent right in our face right now, I, I, I spoke with Aaron about this. We talked about the fact that I think it would be wrong to not acknowledge and to not talk and speak to the fact that right now we're in the middle of something that's being broadcast as Pride Month. And the reason I bring that up is because Pride Month has come up as a, um, within the LGBTQ community as something that is, is, is intentionally trying to promote and honor people for the way that they identify or the things that they present in the LGBT community. And in some respects, there was, we're responding to a lot of really poor treatment in the past, understandably so. Remember I talk about like connecting and understanding where people are coming from? I would say that as King's Cross Church, we are we do adhere to what is a historical Christian biblical view, if we understand it, of sexuality. And so for us, this is a celebration of something that's a false hope. Just, just I want to I acknowledge that. But I also know it's a very difficult conversation. And, and I, I hesitated to go into this because I told Aaron, A, it's not about that here. But, but, but B, because like, I can't give you a full treatment of that right now. We can't talk about it holistically at this very moment. Only, only a little surface skim. But this is what I wanted to address because I saw this here. Is that as believers in Christ, if we have a biblical view, we understand who Christ is and the hope that's in him. And we wanna look at idolatry. That is right now something that we probably need to consider how we navigate with friends, family, relatives, and coworkers. And what I don't want us to do is to be the kind of people who are the cause of the hurt and the shame and the pain in that community because of how awful we are to, to them. And I think the example Paul gives is not that. Not at all. He disagrees with where they are, but he also finds common ground in conversations and is able to have that conversation with them even if they reject him. Now, what I wanted to do before I walked away from this, because I want to move on through the passage, is that there are some very good uh, resources that I find helpful, some voices in this, um, this world in the church that, have, uh, that are, have very close ties or have in the past within the, the same community of LGBTQ and who have a great um, conversations about being a faithful follower of Christ and navigating that in the world. Uh, Rosaria Butterfield is one, and she's actually in Durham. Uh, Sam Albury is someone else that I've appreciated his input. And Beckett Cook is somebody that I've heard uh, in podcast form or YouTube. Um, that's primarily where I've seen him. Uh, these are individuals that are, give us thoughtful conversation to walk through this because I want to do well like Paul does, even if I'm not accepted uh, in my conversation to encourage people towards Christ. And I think they do well. So what happens to Paul when he first interacts with the Epicureans and the Stoics? Some said, what is this ignorant show-off trying to say? Another replied, he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Now, interestingly enough, they, they go into this, and I don't think ignorant show-off catches what they're actually trying to say about him. 
They say, what is this ignorant show up? Other places, they translate this as babblers, okay? That's not even good enough because there's a sense in which this phrase and this um, uh, euphemism that they're using is like a bird that's picking up scraps, okay? That's what it's kind of relating to. Essentially, they're saying this guy that has some random knowledge he's caught like from different people and he's trying to like talk about it. What is this guy doing? Who is he? He's no, he's a know-it-all. He doesn't know anything. Okay, so that's their first response. The other one is he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So we know, and actually, by the way, this is the only time Jesus' name comes in the start passage. But we know that he's talking to them about Jesus and the resurrection. And it's kind of an interesting thing, but there's a reason to believe that they think he's talking about two gods because they've got no sense of resurrection as a concept. And the term resurrection is Anastasia. So they're thinking, he's talking about these two gods, Jesus and Anastasia, who are these people? So that's kind of the context he's going into this with, all right? So they ask him, they say, there's this ignorant chatterbox. What's this guy talking about? We're not familiar with their teaching. So they want to learn and better understand. So verse 19, they took him in and they brought him to the Areopagus. And they said, maybe we learn about this new teaching you're presenting because what you say sounds strange to us. And we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners residing there spent their time on nothing else but telling or hearing something new. Now this is a point where Luke provides a little bit of commentary because they've invited him in to present his ideas and they want to hear about it. And this is something of a shot in the which he frames this. He goes, because Athenians have nothing to do but talk about ideas. That's kind of really the context of what he's saying. They just sit around and talk about stuff. So here we are, Paul comes in to address them. They want to know what it is he's speaking about and now he gets to proclaim the risen Lord. All right, verse 22. Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus and he said this, people of Athens, I see that you are extremely religious in every respect. For as I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. All right, so Paul here starts off, and if we're learning from the way that he's, he's, he's talking to the Athenians, he starts off by trying to make a direct connection, a relation, and an observation, right? He's like, I've seen this about you. He cares enough to observe something about them so that they, he knows that he's paying attention, all right? He says, I'm walking around and I see you guys are extremely religious in every respect. Now, it's not completely respectful the way he says this because it's actually like you're superstitious, Okay, there's a little sense in which he's like, I can see you guys are very superstitious. You're so superstitious, in fact, that I see you even have an altar in which inscribed an unknown God, like you're just covering all your bases. Okay, now, now, remember I told you that there's so much commentary ink spilt over these passages? Some of that is here. We have no real physical evidence of an unknown God altar that we've found, uh, as far as I'm aware and what I've seen and read, but, but there are um, historical references to these actual altars to unknown gods and unnamed gods. So, so in fact, what Paul is seeing was one of probably a couple different things. One of them could have been there was something really, really negative that happened somewhere. Maybe a crop died. Maybe a kid got run over by, uh, by, by a chariot and something happened. You know, we put up on the side of the road things. That they might have come and tr- said this was an act of some kind of a god and a deity, and we don't know which one, but we're going to raise an altar and hope we appease them. That, 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 that was something that happened, that very superstitious thing. Right? Let's just raise an altar. Hopefully, whatever gods or unnamed gods are here will be appeased. The other one was that actually we have evidence that um, gr- Greek communities and other Gentile communities would talk about the Jewish God as an unknown or unnamed God. Because if you think about it, they have Jupiter, they have Zeus, they have, they have Aphrodite. They got names for their gods. 
We're just like, hey, who, what's your God's name? God. You know, so what do you call him? God. <laughs> Let's get really crazy. I am. <laughs> Yahweh. So, so if they wanted to maybe adopt in and say, well, let's also cover their God, or maybe they had some reason they were thinking they were interested, they were a God-fearer, maybe they were interested, but they weren't really clear on how to handle this worship, this new God, they would put up potentially uh, an altar to this unnamed God. All right, who it is. So in, real, in very real sense, Paul potentially is addressing this God they think about. I'm gonna tell you about the one you're ignorant about because you, know, you wanna hear more about him apparently, or you're interested in appeasing him. So Paul does that. He leverages their superstition and he introduces them to the God they don't know. Look, carry on with me, verse 23. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he is the Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in shrines made by hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. He says, what you worship in ignorance, let me tell you about him. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. He's the one, you're worshiping all these side gods and idols. And actually there's no reason for us to say there's no spiritual warfare at play there either, okay? They, they're an empty idol here, but Paul references later in his letters that behind an idol is a demon. Like idol worship is demonic. It's, it's, saddle, it's settling our hope in something less than God himself. And so he's saying, you are worshiping all of these other things, but I'm telling you about the God who is the maker and creator of all things, and he is Lord and sovereign over the earth that we're living in and all the spiritual world around us. They got nothing on him. You think Zeus is powerful? Let me tell you about Yahweh. That's kind of the, that's the brand he's laying out there for God, the one who is sovereign and in control. And to be honest with you, the Epicureans are okay at this point. Because Epicurus is like, yeah, sure, he's all power, he's out there, but he doesn't care what we're doing because he's so big, he's transcendent. The Stoics are having a little bit of engagement because they're like, ho, 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 everything's God. And he says, no, 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 he doesn't need you to build him a place. He doesn't need you to serve him. He is not in this place, he's outside of it and he is powerful and above it. He's not in it. He's not the same as it. He isn't the tree. He's not you and me. God is altogether other and he has given all of us life and breath in all things. So you don't need to serve him. This is the typical thing happening. They're giving food and meat to the idols as if they need to feed them. And this idea is nothing new because philosophers like Socrates, for them at least, actually speculated. It's kind of weird that we have to serve the gods, right? Like, are they really that powerful if we got to bring them a steak? Right? That's what he's thinking. And at the same time, uh, I believe it was Socrates as well as others who also speculated there's probably a God that's like above all the rest of them. So he's still kind of talking their language. They're like, all right, we're tracking. Okay, not exactly how I see it, but I hear you. So he continues on in verse 26. From one man, he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth, and he's determined the appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. He did this so they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. That's just a significant turn. It's a very significant turn for the, for the uh, Epicureans because God's out there and has no concern for us. But Paul immediately says, no, he's even guided the places in which you live and where you reside and the times in which you live. And for the very purpose that he says that you might know him. 
He is so personal. He is not elsewhere and unconcerned with you. He's very concerned with you in such a way, not that he's just concerned about what you do, but rather on who you know and worship and aimly that it would be him. Because we look at the God of the Bible and we say, we say he is the only one worthy of, the per, of, of being a God who claims you to worship him alone. Let me rephrase that so I'm very clear here. That he alone is worthy of all our praise. So he alone, as he sees us, says you shouldn't settle for anything less. Paul is presenting to them a God that is all powerful and over everything and needs no service from you because he's given you life, but also he's the one that wants to be known by you and to know you and to give you life day after day through relationship with him. This kind of addresses and talks to the question that's common with people who object to the idea of God and say, what about the person who doesn't know anything about Jesus or God and he lives on some remote location who has never heard anything about Jesus? Is he gonna send him to hell? Because, you know, he doesn't know about it. Paul's saying he's appointed time and places of all people so that they might know him. And in Romans, he tells us that that we have enough by what's created to see the character of God around us. And then he continues, we still reject him. So we're without excuse. See, I believe fully in the justice and righteousness of God and also the God that Paul proclaims that loves and cares his creation enough to make a way that as he, what he says, they might seek and find him. The Stoics would often say you could learn about God by examining the creation and doing intellectual exercises to find him because he's everything, right? Paul is saying this is not an intellectual exercise. God wants to know you relationally. He's not to be examined and broken apart and, and, and <laughs> uh, I'm trying to think of the phrase, now I'm losing it, but that's okay, not, not to be broken apart and um, and graft, if you will, or, or placed out on spreadsheets and analyzed in steadies to be known, loved, and trusted, and followed. Paul continues in verse 28. For in him we live and move and we have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are all his offspring. Since then we are God's offspring, we shouldn't think that this divine nature is like gold or silver or stone or image fashioned by human art and imagination. Paul continues to draw the connection with the people. He says, listen, your poets have even said that we're his offspring. Why do we think it's his offspring that he would be like a rock or a, or, or a gold statue? We are his offspring. And even this is another poet he quotes where he says, in him we live, we move, and have our being. That's not a direct quote, but that is something that their, their philosophers spoke about. That in God we live and we move, we have our being. He is presently around us and near, but we are his offspring. And Paul further expands on this and he makes the connection with them so they could say, yeah, we, we do believe that. And finally in verse 30, he goes actually to the point where they get very uncomfortable. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he's appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Now, 
as you've seen this entire time, the Athenians are okay with listening to what Paul has to say. And this is the point where they change a little bit of their opinion. Because now, while Paul has been drawing their attention to God somewhat generally, now he has drawn their attention to the fact that he is so interested in you in this world, that he is such a loving and caring and righteous God that he cannot leave the world as it is, but he has to make it right. So while he's overlooked ignorance in the past, he's commanding us to turn from all this random idol worship. It's like you guys are superstitious. He's now saying, turn from that and turn to me because I need to judge the world as it is. Do you see that's what he's saying? He set a day in which he's going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he's appointed. Who's the man? That's Jesus. That now we've gone from God in general who is who we live in, move in. He's all powerful. He wants to know us and have a relationship. They haven't really bucked so far at this. They've listened, probably some scoffing, but they go very specific. Paul goes very specifically to Jesus himself and says that God who wants to be known by you and have a relationship with you so much, he sent Jesus and now we can really see who God is in him. We can see his character, his love, his affection, his righteousness, his justice. We can see all that wrapped up in Jesus himself. And he raised him from the dead just to put an exclamation point on his power and his lordship. That's what the church preached. His, his resurrection that he's been continuing to preach from town to town is what gives him the seal of authority. Over death, over sin, He's been confirmed as Lord over all this. While God has created all things, he's saying in Jesus, we see the ruling and reigning of God himself in the world physically. We see God. We see him. In all his goodness, he's gonna set things right. And he tells the Athenians, now you're gonna have to repent because you're not ignorant anymore and you see what God's doing. And you have to do something with him. Listen, can I tell you, that's actually where you're gonna run into the biggest pushback. It really is. But believers, unbelievers, listen, this is the pushback point. We can have conversations about God generically all day long. You really can. But once we start talking about Jesus and his divinity and who he is, that's when people don't like. They, they, they don't like it because you're very specific about God now. You're saying that this man who was sent to earth and came, the Islamic community, Muslims are gonna say, no way, that's a prophet. God doesn't come in the flesh, not a bit. Other communities like these philosophers think you're crazy. Resurrection, we never see that. I think that's funny because that's kind of the point. He's like, I'm God. Yes, you don't see this. Nobody else gets to get this until Jesus does it. And now he offers it to all people. You know, even though the passage doesn't explicitly mention Jesus, we know who he's talking about. God isn't a tyrant who needs our service, but he's a loving creator who rules over everything. And he structured our lives so that we could seek him out and even in our darkest times, find him and know him. It's, that, it's a sense in what he's talking about that you might feel about to find him. He's saying God is near to be known. And now he's inviting all of us to come to him through Jesus. He sent Christ to save the world because he wants us to truly know him. He wants to be in a relationship with those he's created. He wants us, as it says, repent, to turn from the idols that we're trusting in and trust in him. That's really what that means. And everyday believers, that's what we do too. 
We repent from the things we're trusting in to trust more in the Lord. We repent into trusting in, in, in the money, the success, the power, whatever is offered to us here in this world as being our hope and our salvation and we place our trust in Jesus alone. And even if it doesn't work out the way we think it could, we don't compromise because we want to fully trust in him. That's the way you know him is by trusting more in him. And this is the point that the mood shifts when Paul starts to talk about God as Jesus. Because then we see in the next passage, their response in verse 32. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some began to ridicule him, but others said, we'd like to hear from you again about this. So Paul left their presence. However, some people joined him and believed, including Dionysius, the Aragapite, a woman named Demarius, and others with him. So upon hearing about the resurrection of the dead, really the majority of the people kind of rejected it. It's not insignificant that though Athens is a big city, we don't hear about an Athenian church being established. Not in scripture here. There are some church history that commentates on Dionysius being a first bishop in the Athens area, or maybe even Corinth, which we're going to next week. Okay. Dionysius is actually one of those leading ruler thinkers in the group. So he's not just somebody in the crowd. There were other people, but he in particular is called out. And then another woman named Demarius, Demaris, and we don't hear about them ever again. Overall, as far as the gospel, think about this, as far as a, as a revival message, we've seen thousands come, thousands come, thousands come, and then he comes here in the light. We got some two people that came. I got a couple names for you. I mean, listen, he's not getting, he's not getting invited to the big conference to talk about church growth strategies at this point. With this message alone, I mean, yeah, we'd have Paul. But it's encouraging, though. I'll be honest with you, because while he's addressing some of the deep thinkers, and I've already talked about this from the beginning, we are, we are consumed and enveloped in all kinds of opinions and thinking, and, and probably I get into those worlds too much, so you don't see this. But because honestly, you're your coworker at your place is not going to be talking about Epicureans and Stoics and stuff like that, are they? Is that a common conversation around the water cooler? Do you do water coolers? I don't. We don't have one. I've got a fridge. So here's the encouragement. Yeah, it's Paul doing this and he's engaging, but we can do and engage the same way. And we probably don't have to worry about half the knowledge that he has, but we can trust the spirit to guide us as we talk. We can you may impress yourself. Occasionally I do. I impress myself. I'm like, whoa, where'd that come from? Other times I say things that come completely crazy and it makes the biggest impact. I'm like, really? Okay. But the encouragement for us is that even Paul's getting rejected because look, the, the, the gospel, the cross is foolishness to the world. To the Greek specifically, he talks about that the wisdom of the world thinks this is crazy. And we see it played out here in Athens. Some people kind of play like, hey, we'll listen to you more. It sounds kind of like a wishy-washy, like we might be interested to hear some more about this. But overall, they reject him. So we can look at this passage and we can see our friends, our family, our coworker, and we can see, hopefully in this way, we can discern and pray that God would give us wisdom to identify the, the idolatry that's around us in this world and what people are believing and putting their hope in that is really a lie. And then we can, like Paul, in wisdom from the Spirit, 
graciously and humbly engage them where they are. Oh, because here's the deal. Remember Paul quotes their poets? Seneca, who's a Stoic, was often seen quoting some Epicureans. He said, yeah, because even, even from a bad book can get a good quote, okay? My point being in this, it would be foolish for us to think that just because someone isn't a follower of Jesus that they have everything wrong. Just in the same way, it would be dumb for you to think that because you follow Jesus, you get everything right. So we can understand that all truth belongs to the Lord. That all truth is God's truth. And if there's a connecting point where someone sees and understands in this world and you can reach across and reach into their life and acknowledge, say, hey, I see where you believe this, but I don't think you're going far enough. You believe that God is present and here and loves you. I, I, I believe that too. Look, can I tell you about the God that I know that he wants you to know him fully? And it's in Jesus. There's connecting points for conversation. And then don't be surprised in the end when we see the same response like in Athens. It's just what's gonna happen. And what I'm encouraged by with Paul is that he continues to persevere in the mission because we don't see this being the end of Acts. He's not like, oh, I preached my last worst sermon. I'm done. He got two named converts and he's like, that's it, I'm packing up, going home. You've got this now. No, instead, he goes to the next town. We go into Corinth. We see the Corinthian church planted. We see him go into other areas and plant more churches because here's what he knows. Ultimately, other people's souls is between them and the Lord. And if they have Jesus, they have a responsibility to respond to that. And that's not on us. That's not on me. That's not on you. I had a conversation not long ago with someone who asked a very similar question where they asked something about, what about somebody who knows about God that, that, or that knows about these things, but they see religious and they're disillusioned by all the really bad stuff they see, so they don't follow that stuff and they're just trying to live the best they can. Even the things that you say are good. He told me, he's like, I'm trying to live kind of by those principles. I said, man, listen, that's, that's good in a sense of you trying to live by those principles because he's talking about himself. Um, I'll tell you how I respond to that and maybe it's helpful for you. Ultimately, I say this, I believe in a good, and he asked me this, he said, does that mean I'm going to hell? Okay, well, first off, if you in here profess Christ, I can't guarantee you 100%, I know if you're going to hell or not, or that you're being rejected or in wrath. That's what I told him. I said, I can't tell people who sit in the pew every day, much less you, but I'll tell you this. God is just and righteous and good, and, he, and I believe that he will judge each according to their works. That's what it says. And you know about Jesus. So you have to do something with him. And my encouragement to you is what I understand scripture to say is that he's our only hope for salvation. The way, the truth, and the life. It, 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 it's not, I think it's remarkable when we look at the fact that if God came into the world that all the fallout from Jesus himself would probably be something we would expect. Our entire timeline is centered around before and after Christ, although we changed it to before, but the same time frame. Did you know every, almost every major religion in the world has decided they have to do something about Jesus? Like they reference him. They say either he is a way, he's a way, or he's a good teacher. They all acknowledge him. Guess what? The only one that doesn't say anything about the rest of them is Jesus. He's like, yeah, I am the way. It, it's not, I understand 
church hurt. I understand hypocrisy. People have to look to Jesus and deal with him. Not all the foolishness around him, not the people who claim his name and the things that they do or don't do that is unchristlike. You gotta look at Jesus and that's who we should always point people to, the resurrected king. Don't ever lose sight of that. Don't try to fix people, don't try to change people, don't try to adopt, don't try to clean them up to make them acceptable to God because Jesus is the one that does that. Jesus is the one that changes people. And we can have full confidence as we discern idolatry around us, as we move in to engage and trust the spirit to guide us, as we exalt God most high and we point people to Jesus, the resurrected King, that he transforms and changes lives and he will continue to build his church and it's all up to him, not us. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the way in which you guide us day after day. Lord, give me discernment. Give our people discernment. Give this church discernment. Lord, give us wisdom that we can see Christ as first and foremost and declare him to the world like Paul. Encourage our hearts that we, we don't lose confidence, that we're not discouraged by the responses of the world, that we don't come into this place and just think, wow, you know, are we making an impact or what are the things we can or can't be doing? That ultimately, if we are proclaiming and declaring Christ in our lives day after day and at this pulpit and this church and in this community, then we are doing your work and we can trust you with the growth. We can trust you with the result. God, make, make much of Jesus in our life and our church. Make us look more like him as we follow in obedience. And Lord, bring Raleigh to you bring North Carolina and the people in it to you. God, may we not be and see the results like Athens, but God, in your glory and your power and the spirit, God, transform hearts and minds. God, if any movement of your spirit is to occur, it's ultimately your spirit doing the moving. Give us, grant us in your grace the privilege to see you move in our midst. God, even if it's another church that can come into this community that we partner alongside, but bring the people and the message and the relationships, God, that exalts Christ throughout our city and throughout the state, throughout the country and around the world. Oh, we could send missionaries out just like Paul continues to go from town to town to plant churches to ultimately advance your kingdom. Thank you for all you've done. Thank you for all you do. And I ask this in Christ's name. Amen.